All right, good morning. Well, blessed Lord's Day to you. Um, we have a, a lot to cover today, uh, but we are approaching the end of the book of Job. And um, hopefully it has been a rich study for you. It's been a rich study for me. And, uh, um, and I think uh, today is an interesting one because we'll be talking about the, the behemoth and uh, the Leviathan. It's that section that you've all been waiting for. Right? We want to talk about, you know, super cows and hippos and crocodiles. No, we're not. We, we are going to talk a little bit about that. But we are going to talk about um, uh, this final speech of God. Well, his final speech to Job. There's two speeches. In fact, let me walk us up so that we're all caught up to exactly what's taking place. Job, we all know the first two chapters. Everyone knows the first two chapters of Job. Job is a good man, a righteous man, big family. And then in one day, God takes all of that from him. His children are killed. Right? His fortunes are stolen or destroyed. All his servants are, are killed off or fled. His body breaks out in boils and painful difficulties. He's sitting outside the city on a garbage heap, scraping himself for some relief, waiting to die. Friends have arrived, and they have at first sat in comfort and weeping with him. And then they begin to explore why God would do this to Job. And the things that they begin to consider is, Job, you, you must have done something wrong. And through three cycles of they speak, Job speaks, they speak, Job speaks, right? Job has been contending that he has done nothing directly to deserve this from the hand of God. There's no hidden sin. There's nothing that he has, uh, he has been taking advantage of the poor or of young ladies, or any of that stuff that's insinuated by his friends. He is innocent of it all, and he's tired of it. And in the end, he begins to speak that God needs to show up and vindicate him, that God should, should come on the scene and explain to him why bad things happen to decent and good people. He expects an answer from the living God, if he is a righteous and true God, to come and explain himself. And it's in the midst of that that Elihu, who I suggest is a prophet, comes on the scene and gives Job a not-so-subtle rebuke. Rebukes him for his attitudes. Rebukes him for some of the things that he is saying. Rebukes him for the sin that is, that is not the cause of his suffering, but the sin and the attitudes of sin that have resulted from his suffering. Job doesn't even respond. He listens to Elihu, and then God came on the scene. God gave his first speech, and in his first speech, he focused on the idea that his governance is not so great. Remember, the whole key in that is the word counsel. It means uh, the wisdom to be able to govern, to choose, and to do what is best. And the whole point was Job seems to suggest that he could do better. Lord, you could do better than this. I, I don't know if you know everything that's happening in this world. I don't know if you know everything that's happening in my life. I don't know if you know everything that is taking place in earthquakes that are killing tens of thousands of people. I don't know if you know that wickedness abounds. And you can feel that because we still feel that 
that is God's wisdom, is his counsel infinite? Does he still have control of this universe? Because there's so much stuff that is messed up. Listen, we resonate with Job's complaint, or we probably do. Maybe some of you out there are are so godly that you have no fear of anything. You're unaffected by everything, and if that's the case, you're probably not godly, right? Because God desires us to be affected by much. But is God in full governance? That was the first, first speech. And God addresses that by saying, Job, you're darkening counsel. You're darkening wisdom. You're clouding the truth of wisdom and what is required to govern this universe. You are, you are making dark, right? You are hiding, you are covering that which is wise and excellent and necessary. You're speaking like a fool. As if you actually know how the universe could be governed better. And he gives examples of what the universe is like. He asked Job questions like, hey, you were there then, right? When the sons of God started shouting for joy and the stars were singing because of the creation of the world, you must have been there. You must understand how it is to create an entire universe and the splendor and the majesty of governing it. You must get that. You must know how every animal does the weird and crazy and wacky things that those unique animals can do. Why certain animals can breathe water. That's nuts, right? No such thing as an Aquaman. Not really, right? Human beings don't breathe water, right? Like, how can they do such a thing? How can those animals fly, right? Why can these guys do this or that? Like, why is this possible? Who has created such a realm? Job, you must know if you have the right to question my governance, you must at least know how I've laid out everything. That was his first speech. And the, Job's response to that, right, was that he is small. Lord, I, I've, I've overstepped myself. I, I've forgotten you are God, which means you are infinite, and I am a creature, a creation of your hand. I am indeed amazingly small and so the first part of job's turning his repentance is the recognition right that he is not god but more than that is the recognition that he has no capacity to match god he is small and i would encourage you to recognize that that's part of our humility because the one thing that we struggle with in our pride and our self-centeredness is that everything is large when it comes to me I don't mind if you don't get, you know, the chicken wing, right? The last chicken. I mind if I don't get any chicken wings, right? If we have, like, Spam Musubi for lunch, and, you know, like, whenever there's a bake sale, there's some Spam Musubis, and by the time I get over, usually they're sold out, and I'm, like, strongly disappointed, and so the bake sale has been a little bit of a fail for me, right? You get what I'm saying? Like, but what? It's not a fail, it served its purposes. And a bunch of people ate Spam Musubis. Probably some of them ate too many Spam Musubis, right? But it was successful and good and excellent. But not to me. Why? Because I am the biggest thing in my own mind. You are the biggest thing in your own soul, in your heart. You get up in the morning and you complain to yourself about how the universe doesn't revolve around you. 
about that person you have to deal with, that job you have to deal with, your dissatisfactions with these relationships or this circumstance, right? Like you speak to yourself about how magnificent you are. And so the first thing that has happened to Job after God's first speech is he recognizes, I am crazy small. And you are infinitely large. But that's not full repentance. That repentance is about to come. The second speech is the speech we look at today. In this speech, if the first one speaks of God's general counsel and whether he's, not, he's big enough, strong enough, smart enough to govern everything, the second one is more particular. It's about God's governance of justice. And in particular, it answers Job's questions, why is evil running rampant? Why do so many crazy things happen? Now, when we use the term evil, especially in the book of Job, we don't, we don't, we don't narrow it merely to moral or spiritual evil. We mean evil in the sense that circumstantially bad things happen to decent people, right? We mean, um, we mean you know, circumstantial and moral and all of the spiritual, everything, anything that could be defined as that which opposes the best and the good and what should be in a world governed by a God who is perfectly good and just and loving and righteous. And what we find at the conclusion of this second um, address by God is Job's absolute repentance he says i repent in dust and ashes so as we talk about behemoth and leviathan we need to know we need to know right off the bat that there's something happening here that affects job in such a way that he feels like it's not enough to say god is infinite i am tiny right it draws him to repentance so if it's merely talking about a hippo or a crocodile right a brontosaurus or you know a fire-breathing dragon if that's all god is talking about just another one of his creations and that's all there is to it then i have no idea what's happening with job i don't see the direct correlation because god has talked about the wonder of his creation all the creatures that he's made in his first speech and job says man i'm tiny you are huge he gets that so when god comes back and says let's speak specifically about the behemoth the leviathan whatever god is speaking of whatever job understands him to be speaking of it's enough to for job to say i am an idiot and i repent in dust and ashes that suggests that like you could sprinkle death over me i deserve to die and i want to turn from my death ways to acknowledge my god so something is happening in the second speech that goes so far beyond merely, have you heard about the dinosaurs and the dragons, right? It could be dinosaurs and dragons that is the building block of what God is talking about. I, I'm not mad at that. And if you want to say that scripture is speaking to, I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily upset about it. I'm just saying it's got to be deeper than that. They're really big animals, I repent in dust and ashes, right? I, I don't think that's what's happening. I think Job recognizes God is speaking to him and asking this question, right? Who can tame monstrous evil? He's using these monsters as a means of speaking of that which is not just uncontrollable, 
but undeniable. And the end of it is Job repenting in dust and ashes. I won't read our section for us. We will read it as we go because it's a long section, but I will pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you, and even as we're talking about things that are untamable in terms of circumstantial evil, in terms of moral evil, in terms of things that are in this world that we despise and we hate and we fear and we tremble at, whether it's war or earthquakes or shootings. Father, this world is out of control from our perspective. It is monstrous. It is terrifying. Help us like Job to not cast blame upon you or to accuse you of injustice or incapacity, but to recognize that you are still in control of everything and even circumstantial, even moral evil becomes an instrument in your hands to do what is right and good. Father, we are always reminded again of the crosswork of your son, Jesus Christ. That the single most evil event in all of human history, you orchestrated so that we could be redeemed by the blood of Christ and be forgiven of our sins. So help us to trust in this God, the great God, that is capable of taming, of holding back, and of actually utilizing everything, good and bad, that happens in this world. For your glory, for the good of your people, and for the ultimate glorification of your Son. We praise you and ask that you would teach us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is how we're walking through this. And really, the main things is God's, the Lord's challenge, which is the first point, and a few verses there. And then Job's response, which is the last few verses in point number four. And the behemoth and the Leviathan are kind of that, that illustrative uh, um, uh, teaching point that God gives to Job along the way that takes us from God's challenging of Job to Job's response to God's illustrations. But let me say this. I know you guys are familiar with the butterfly effect, right? You guys know that because you've watched a lot of sci-fi movies and you go back in time and then, you know, you drink that cup of coffee and then you change everything and the future's all purple or whatever, right? Like that's the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect is an actual term and it is, um, it is attributed uh, particularly to one uh, scientist, um, Edward Norton Lorenz. He's a mathematician and a meteorologist, and I forgot to write down the date, but this is sometime in like the 1950s or 60s or something. Um, might have been later. Uh, not a scientist, pastor, right? Um, but he recognized something. He created, like he was a meteorologist, mathematician. He created this weather model, right? They used a lot of math and stuff that I don't know. And then he designed this model so that he could input like current temperatures, winds, all these different kind of conditions in a certain area, and it would model out two months of projections of what the weather would be like. It was brilliant. It was excellent. But what he found that was interesting was that if in his calculus, in his calculations, if he, if he inputted a number with just a slight, almost inconsequential difference, it came out to a huge difference two, three months later in terms of 
what would be projected by weather. Let me try to give you an understanding of this, because I would read this, and I'm like, well, what does that even mean? Well, so imagine this. One input that he would put in would be a measure, or the number would be 0.506. So just a fraction above half of something, right? Well, between that and inputting instead, right, because that would be a rounded figure, right, rounded from this exact number, 0.506, same numbers, and then you add 127 at the end. And all of you that took even, I don't know, junior high school math, no, you could, you have a right to round up some numbers sometimes, right? And so to round up, right, to make a difference of 127 millionth, right, that, that fraction of a number as part of the input would result in the difference between this tornado heading this way or a very strong breeze, right, or a strong windstorm that, you know, people should just be aware of that the winds will be high. This, this is what began to, to what, you know, um, Edward Norton Lorenz said um, a seagull would flap his wings and it would affect the trajectory and the direction and speed of a tornado months later. But the seagull effect just doesn't sound too good, right? So, you know, others said, hey, you should, you know, you should like pump that up. And he said, yeah, we could say a butterfly. Butterfly's wings flapping has that effect. I don't know how, how you know, I don't, I'm not a scientist. And even if I read his, I have no idea what he's talking about, right? He could be right, right? But the idea is, being, is, is saying that, that the world interacts in such a way, this universe interacts in such a way, that just a slight timing miscue. I spill a little coffee on my shirt, and so I need a baby wipe. And because of that, right, I get on the freeway about 30 seconds later, and on my way, the car right in front of me crashes into another car right? Or maybe the car right behind me. I don't know if you've had that experience. I've had that, that experience multiple times where a guy literally crashes into something right next to me. I'm like, man, good thing I wasn't in that lane. I could have been in that lane. Like there is an effect of small things and who has the capacity to balance all of that effect? To say that this person shows up late to this and it affects this, this, and this, and who sees who and where they go and whether or not they stay right. Like, who can balance all that? And the answer is no one except the Creator God who is so sovereign. And this is what we mean when He says that He, he is juggling a billion or a trillion balls at the same time without losing track of any. When we say He is sovereign, when Scripture says that He is sovereign, that there is nothing that is random in this universe. Right, even the, the tossing of the lots, it's like the tossing of dice. They fall into your lap, the Proverbs say. But the Lord directs its, its movement. The Lord knows. He, he determines exactly what that number comes up. This is what we're talking about. Do we have the capacity of God? And if we don't, then should we consider that maybe the monstrous evils around us are still in His hands? So we begin with the Lord's challenge, right? Starting in verse 6 of chapter 40, the Lord challenges Job, and he begins with Job's accusation. Verse 6, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and, and I know we're going to bypass that, but in both speeches, it is introduced with the Lord speaking to Job out of a storm, maybe a tornado, 
right? A windstorm. He is, he is speaking to Job in a circumstance that would unnerve Job and all of us. Like, hey, there's a tornado. And God is talking through it, right? Like, like that's not comfortable for me, right? The, the, the accusation that God, speaking out of the storm, says about Job is this. Verse 7, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. God is saying, okay, you know, dress up for action. Get ready. You want to go? Let's, let's go. Let's suit up and let's get down to business. Verse 8 Will you even put me in the wrong? This is the accusation that God is hearing from Job. Are you saying, Job, that I act wrongly? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Would you speak of God in such a way that implies his injustice or his incapacity or unwillingness to do what is good or right? Will you condemn me so that you would be correct, so that you would be right? You could be just and God could be unjust. Is God failing in caring for all righteous things? That's the accusation. And so here's God's challenge in verses 9 through 14. Sorry, that's the next one, right? And his challenge is simply this. Can you do better? So God is clearly understanding where Job is coming from. And he's following him to his logical conclusion. And he's saying, okay, so you have so much criticism you have so many things, so many concerns, all right? <clears throat> can you do better? Verse 9. Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? It's a phenomenal statement, right? God is saying, Job, so it seems like you feel like you could run this universe better. So let me see your guns. Let me see what kind of arm you got, right? Because he's saying, do you have the power, the arm like God's, God doesn't have a physical arm, right? The idea is that can you make things happen? Can you move power like God can? And he says, and can you thunder? Can your voice thunder? Like the voice of command. It speaks and the universe obeys. Do you have that kind of power and command in your, in your constitution? Can you do this? He says, if you can, then verse 10, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Put on, right? Put on majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Verse 11, pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. So they put on the, the, the clothes of deity, of majesty, of dignity, of power, of glory. And then send your anger against the proud. Now I want you to catch this. Verse 11, pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Make sure that you don't miss a single proud person, a single proud thought, or a single proud moment. Collect it all and pay it all in full. Because otherwise you would be unjust. Right? If, if God was pouring out against you every wrong thing, every proud moment that you had, but for Nam Park, he decided, okay, I'm going to let a bunch go because I love that dude, right? That would be unjust. That would not be fair. That would not be righteousness. So he's saying, so if you got the, the gifts, if you have the godlike power, the godlike command, if you have majesty, dignity, glory, and splendor like God, then pour out your anger and make sure you catch everyone in every sin and abase him. Verse 12 doubles down. Look 
on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Make sure that everyone pays full price for everything ever. Thoughts, words, deeds, paid in full. And he says in verse 13, 14, hide them all together in the dust, bind their faces in the world below. He's talking about cast them into judgment and death. Verse 14, then will I also acknowledge you that your own right hand can save you. This last, this last part is interesting. This is the Lord saying, okay, so here's the accusation. You're saying that I am unjust, right? Do you call God unjust? And he's saying, so how about you, Job? Can you do better? Because if you can, you can't miss a single moment, a single thought, a single motive. You have to catch it all. You have to judge it all. And then you have to place all of that into judgment and confine it to sin and hell, to death and hell. And he says, and if you can do that, then I'll acknowledge you. And I like this interesting last part, that your own right hand can save you, that you don't need me. Because if you could do all that, then you can save yourself. I, I find it tremendously interesting because as part of God's insight to Job is to say, that this is how you are speaking of me, Job. So you talk to me, can you do better? And whether or not you think you can, because obviously as, as God is asking this to Job and he's asking that of us, we would say, Lord, okay, we, we know we, we can't do better. But the end result of that is that then you can't save yourself. You can't change your circumstances. You, you can't make things different. Job can't go, okay, Lord, you know what? You're right. Let me just stand up and and snap my fingers and then reverse time and make everything change. How many times have you wished that you had the power to reverse time? Right? You, you don't. I, I do sometimes. You don't at all, right? None of us do. We don't have that kind of godlike power, and that's the point, right? It, what that implies is that you can't rescue your circumstances, that you want to, you wish things were different, you think, wish that things could be better, right? But you can't change that because you're not God. So this is God's challenge to him. You're not God, and in the end, it means that you can't save yourself. You still need a Savior, Job. You still need a Savior, friend. As you sit in that, in that pew right now, you still need a Savior because you have not the capacity, right, to set the world just right in righteousness to set the world right and you certainly don't even have the power or the capacity to set yourself right right that's the lord's challenge so let's speak of the behemoth and the leviathan the behemoth first and um let me let me just kind of give you a little bit of background on the idea of the behemoth verse 5 um verse 15 sorry behold behemoth which i made as i made you he eats grass like an ox behold his strength his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar and the sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. That's a fantastic description. Behemoth, the term itself, is the plural form of behemoth. And behemoth is a pretty normal term. It just means beast or cattle. It's a term for cow, right? 
And then the plural form in the Hebrew can mean that there's many of them, but it can also mean that there's a, there's a superlative there that is the greater among them. Similarly, God is often referred to, right? The term God, El, which is a term for strength, that's God. And that can refer to our God in the Old Testament Hebrew. It can refer to other gods, right? And then in the plural form, Elohim, Elohim could refer to the pantheon of gods. Oh yeah, the Philistines over there, they worship their gods, plural. But if it's referring to our God, the one true God, according to Deuteronomy 6, there is no other God, and there's only one God when it refers to Him. In the plural, it is meant to make it a superlative. Elohim, our Elohim, He, singularly, is greater than any other God. You get that? Many of you this afternoon will watch a football bowl. A bowl, right? If I called it bowls, you'd say, wait, is there more than one game? So no, I pluralized it, right? So you know that this is a superior bowl, a super bowl. That's exactly what is happening here. Bahima turned into Bahimoth to say that Bahimoth is, is a super cow, is this super beast. So the question, and we will return to it, right, is Behemoth and Leviathan, are these real things? Or these mythological, legendary creatures? And I'll give, I'll give you my answer right now um, based on actual you know, animals. These are the mythologized or the legendized versions of things that they actually see. And in a lot of ways, um, the, this, this super cow, the behemoth, is the land creature that is uncontrollable, uncontainable, and represents in the minds of that ancient world that which can come into your life and destroy everything, and you are powerless against it. I think Job understands this. And I think because he understands this, he responds, right, in repentance. Repentance in dust and ashes. But God says in verse 15, right, Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. So it, it has got to be based in some kind of creature that, that Job says, yes, I know such creatures. And yeah, it could be based on a brontosaurus, right? It could be, it could be some, some, some monstrously strong creature. It could be that. Something is like a giant hippo. Like not a hippo, but the king of hippos. Like a big old hippo, right? Like there's all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, like it's that. I don't know. But there is normal stuff that it does. It is the second part of verse 15. It eats grass like an ox. Okay, that's, that's not weird. He's not eating nails, right? Yeah, he eats grass. But then behold, verse 16, his strength in his loins, right? Loins are the lower regions. It means that this guy has a strong base. His power in the muscles of his belly. Ooh, this guy got mad abs, right? Keep going. Verse 17, he makes his, his tail stiff like a cedar, like, like a big old tree. His tail, well, bam, just kill you with just his tail. Like, like man, you are bothering me. I'm going to kill you with the cedar tree of my tail, right? The sinews of his thighs are knit together. The idea of this is, is the fibers of the muscle of his thighs are so tight they're like, you are, bam, you're like, oh, you hurt my head, right? You're just this iron thighs, amazing. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. You get that, right? 
This guy is personified as power. In verse 19 says, He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. When God says that he is the first of the works of God, he doesn't mean that chronologically, that he's the first thing God has made. He means that in the, in the land creatures, he ranks the highest amongst the powerful. I think your NIV will say he ranks first among the works of God. Ranks is a good term for that. It speaks of his largeness, his powerfulness. This is the super beast on land, right? And then that last part, he says, right, in verse 19, let him who made him bring near his sword. What he means by that is, and in all his power, he's still vulnerable. The maker can show up with a sword and go ahead, Time for you to lay down your life, right? And it can't resist. For us, we can't bring this guy down. We have no technological means of, of trying to subdue him. He is out of control. He is near to us. He's dangerous. But the maker, the maker shows up with the sword, and he just kind of like cowers and realizes, uh oh, I think it's my time. Because the maker has right and power over him. Can you overpower him, the behemoth? Can you domesticate him, right? Uh, look, look at that next part. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. This is why people think it might be a you know, description of a, a super hippo. For his shade, the lotus tree covers him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent... He's not frightened. He is confident, though, though the Jordan rushes against his mouth. Like, it doesn't matter how bad everything gets. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with the snare? So the question is, can you tame him? Can you domesticate him? Can you catch him, this behemoth? And the answer clearly is no. But look at how he talks about it. The mountains yield his food for him. The term for yielding there, and that's a good translation in our English, it doesn't simply mean that it just, it just grows food that he likes to eat. It means that like a conquered country, this is the tribute that the mountain must pay him. Right? This is where all the animals play, but they all have to kind of contribute. The mountain has to contribute to him. He's like, you remember in um, uh, you know, How to Train a Dragon? There's that big giant dragon. The monstrous, right, hippopotamus beast, right, behemoth of a dragon. And then all the other dragons have to, like, spit out their food and feed that guy, right? It's exactly that. The mountain full of animals pay tribute to him. And he just kind of hangs out in the waters. And the idea, because it's a strange statement, can one take him by his eyes in verse 24, means, like, he just kind of, like, is half submerged and he kind of is looking at you. And so if you're going to take him, you've got to start with his eyes. You got to either cover them, you got to rope them, right? Because that's all that's available for you to grasp onto. And the idea is can you take him? Can you pierce his nose with the snare? Can you subdue, tame, capture, and con control him? Now, now, I'm saying that it's a super beast and it's a legendary super beast, meaning that Job must understand something of God, what God is speaking about. And maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's like, that. God, what, what are you talking about? That's crazy. Like, you're talking about a crazy monster on land, in the water, right? Um, 
But more likely than not, Job seems to understand something about this. This isn't just talking about an animal. This is talking about that, that kind of animal that is so destructive, that kind of force in nature that is so powerful, like an earthquake, like a hurricane, like a flood, that can be so terrifying that human beings have no control over what to do about it. When the tsunami hits, the only thing you can do is get out of its way. And so something that powerful, that overwhelming, can you domesticate that thing? Can you take control of that circumstance? That's what he's asked Job already, the Lord. And then the speaking of the behemoth, Job is recognizing, Lord, there are things in this world I cannot even begin to fathom how I might take control of those things. That's the point. And it's dawning on him. Then he goes, right, from the behemoth, to the Leviathan. Leviathan. And God, if we think of it as a series of questions, he, he will ask several questions, right? In fact, I'll show you the question right there, right? Can you catch him? Can you stand against him? Can you subdue him? Can you defeat him? This Leviathan. Chapter 41, starting in verse 1, verses 1 through 7 says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? You see the entire motive, mo motif of verses 1 through 7 is simply, Job, you're speaking of your, 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 your demanding that, uh, that God does better in terms of controlling the crazy things in his life. Well, how about, for example, the legendary Leviathan, that sea creature of old? And that sea creature, Leviathan, that term, has been used by Job already. So it is it's something that, that certainly, I think, behemoth Job understands, but Leviathan, for certain, he understands. In fact, the term is used six times throughout the Old Testament. It is used as a figure of Egypt in Psalm 74. It is used to speak of the sinful mankind generally, like a giant serpentine sea monster in Isaiah 27. Leviathan comes from a word that means to twist, and so it's probably a serpentine. Sea monster, sea creature. Some people think that it's the saltwater crocodile, right? Because it's going to talk about its scales and all that kind of... Saltwater cro crocodile is no joke, right? If you guys ever want to look up something on the Nature Channel and you want to see, like, that, that is frightening. Alligators in the water? I'm like, all right, that's all right. I'll get out of the water, right? Saltwater crocodile is like, dude, you better get out the water and keep on running, right? Because this, this thing is bad. This, this is what we're talking about, something that is a Leviathan-level monstrous thing. And God simply asked him this first question, can you catch him? This is that silly, like, you know, so I go to the edge of, like, the, this huge ocean, right? And I throw in my, my fishing hook, and I'm sitting there. Bam! I got him, right? A Leviathan, a creature maybe, I don't know, four stories long, Right? With, with unbreakable scales. Can I hook that monster and land him? Of course not. Can I press down his tongue with a cord? Can I put a rope in his nose, pierce his jaw with a hook? Can I bid and bridle him? And can I bring him onto shore so he's flapping around and he feels so helpless, he begins to plead with me, speak softly to me, and say, Damn, you, 
you got to let me go, man. Don't, don't let it end like this, right? I make a covenant with you, right? Let me be your servant. I'll let you ride my back, right? Like, like, like a giant Pokemon. You could ride on me through the oceans and go wherever you want, right? You can, yeah, can you turn him into a pet like a bird? Put him on a leash and let your girls walk him. This is an interesting statement. God is saying, can you do these things? Can you decide to chop him up, right, and sell him in the fish market? And will merchants come and divide him up and pay for him? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? The answer is no. Job knows that's no. And I think Job knows beyond that, that what God is talking about is there are things that come into the course of our lives that we have no capacity to tame. You can't catch it. You can't tame it. What do you do about that? B, can you stand against him? Verses 8 through 11. He says, lay your hand on him. Then remember that battle, and you're not going to do it again. I love that statement. God is saying, okay, so you see the Leviathan? You got him like he's in that, you know, he's in SeaWorld in the tub, right? So you go in and you lay your hand on him like you're going to wrestle this monstrous beast, and then you will remember that battle, and you're not going to battle him again, right? You're not going to go into that ring a second time. Behold, verse 9, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. To see something that monstrous is enough to bring a man low. Verse 10, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Come on, Leviathan, right? Come on, I can take you, I can take you. And they try to run. Like You, you, can't, you don't even want to stir him up. Then who can stand before me? You notice the interesting turn of pronouns there in verse 10. God is saying, if, if there is a monster in your mind that is so uncontrollable, untamable, so dangerous, that you would not even stir it up if you knew. You saw it at a distance. You want to tiptoe away quietly, get in your car, and drive as far as you can. If that is such a creature, and you are not fierce enough to stir him up, how dare you stand before me? This is the Lord saying, listen, just so that you remember, I'm not your equal. You are not my equal. God is not a safe God. He's a God of justice. And every wrongful act, motive, even thought, invisible to other human beings, known to God, and God demands full payment for that sin. God is not safe, but he is good. And God is saying, if you can't stand before the sea monster, you really think you can stand before me to question my capacities? Verse 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God reaffirming his independence, or that, that old theological term, his aseity, the absoluteness of his being. He doesn't need anybody. He's not invented by anybody. He, no one, whether you believe in God or not, matters none to the Lord in terms of his essential being. It doesn't change him or affect him at all. This is what Paul meant on Mars Hill in Acts 17, 24, 25. He says, God made the world and everything in it being lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything the point is to think about the leviathan 
the, the, the tragedies, the difficulties, the horrors of circumstantial evil and moral evil that, that is around us constantly and we hope that doesn't get too close to us, right? Think of how difficult it is to live in this broken and fallen world and to recognize that we would tremble if the world broke out in another war. We would tremble if we heard on the news that we should flee the city because a nuclear warhead is on its way. We would be devastated, right? We are devastated by personal loss and pain and illness and, and anything that is so difficult. There are so many things that are hard for us as mortal human beings. Tremble before the Leviathans. How much greater is the one who has mastered that Leviathan and anything and everything that happens in all creation? God's point is you think Leviathan is dangerous. The one that could create and uncreate such a beast is the one that you should fear. Can you subdue him? See, verses 12 to 24. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or, his, or the mighty strength or, uh, or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? He's talking about his mouth. Open his mouth. Around his teeth is terror. He'd open his mouth and he'd see the terror of all of his teeth. His back is made of rows of shields. It's like scales, right? But like huge scales. Shut up closely as with a seal. Like nothing can get through. One is so near to the other, talking about the scales, that no air can penetrate between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His armor cannot be undone. I'm saying, can you subdue him? But I mean, like, can you disarm him? Can you dismantle him? Can you take a piece of the armor apart so that you can make him vulnerable? And the answer is, you can't. Can you get close enough to battle him? Verse 18, his sneezings flash forth light. I think the idea is that he sneezes and then you see fire. His eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. He is fire breathing. This, this is where, like, like, we might think this is a description of actual fire breathing dragons. But I'll be honest, in my opinion, it's probably the other way around. This description is where the medieval concepts of dragons and other things have become to flourish. Right? So, Take it for what it's worth, because again, that's not scriptural authority. I'm just, I'm just saying, this doesn't have to be an actual fire-breathing. I'll give some poetic license, especially to the God of the universe, right? His sneezings, right? His flames of, of torches coming out of his mouth, out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a, a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. In his, his stone, like, he don't care. What are you? He's just going to eat you, right? Or if his heart is stone, as in, you think there's a soft spot. Like, I could, I could like, you know, if I could ant-man size down go into his mouth and explode his heart it's like no you can't it's stone right you can't you can't do that there's no way to overcome him see his his 
his movements, right? His, his reality. You, you can't do anything to get beyond him, right? His armor is impenetrable. He, is, he breathes fire. There's only strength and terror all around him. There is no weakness in this beast. There's no way to disarm it. So D, can you defeat him then? After all that has been said and done, can you catch him? No. Can you stand up to him? No. Can you disarm him a little bit? No. So can you disarm, Can you defeat him? The answer is absolutely not. Then verse 25 to 29, when he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. And the, in, at the crashing, they are beside themselves. So the idea is that he just, he probably jumps. He raises himself up, he comes up, and he hits the ground. Boom! And then that crashing is enough to not just frighten everybody, but that they are beside themselves. The term besides themselves, I thought was interesting because that almost seems like an English, uh, um, you know, uh, statement or colloquialism for us, right? Like, oh, I was beside myself, you know? Like, I didn't know what to do, right? But beside myself, the term actually comes from a root word that means to miss the mark or to sin. And I think the idea of this particular word of being beside yourself is to bear chagrin, to feel ashamed, disempowered. It, it is to literally see Leviathan near us, jumping up in the air and is about to crash, of falling to our knees, realizing we are helpless, and I'm ashamed for even thinking that I could have stood here, and as it crashes down, I'm going to die. They looked ashamed for their lack of ability. right? And then, well... Then maybe, you know, we could, we could get in there somehow. We could battle him with our, with our powers, right? Though the sword, verse 26, reach him, it does not avail. Nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw. It's like, oh, metal things. Right? And bronze as rotten wood. You know rotten wood, right? Like you just like step on it, it just like crumbles. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, right? Sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. And he laughs at the rattle of javelins. Like, here come a bunch of javelins. And he's like, oh, that's so funny. It's so cute, right? This is a fire-breathing monster. And in verse 30 through 32, look at his dwelling. His underparts are like sharp pot shears. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge in the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. You get what he's saying is in the deep, he just, he blasts. He's just like going and going so fast that he makes the water seem like they're boiling. And then his wake is just full of just white water and everything just kind of rushing around. So it almost looks thick like ointment, shiny and white-haired, right? This is how powerful he is. And I think it's interesting because two times in that, in that few verses, God mentions his dwelling is in the sea, is in the deep, is in the deep. And he just, he just thrashes around in the deep any way he wants. Remember that he had asked in, the first, um, in his first speech to Job, have you walked the depths of the deep? Have you walked up to the gates of death? And his whole point is this beast has. That's his dwelling. It's the place of chaos and danger and hostility and death. That's where he dwells. Verse 33 and 34, his supremacy. On earth there is not like, there is not his like. A creature without fear 
He sees everything that is high. He looks at everything that thinks it's proud, strong, and exalted. And he knows that he is king over all the sons of pride. We're talking about a creature that is legendary, certainly, that is within God's control and that many commentators think is a reference to the ancient serpent of old. I mean, the idea of a serpent we have in Scripture, right? Leviathan is mentioned as being, you know, this fleeing, twisting serpent, dragging in the sea, right? Um, And in the book of Revelation, the Scriptures do talk about the great dragon that is thrown down, the ancient serpent, in Revelation 12, 9. In Revelation 20, verse 2, it says, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. See, what God is getting at is that there is, there is an evil. But that evil is still under God's domain and control. And so Job needs to figure out, do you have the capacity to overcome the personification of evil? Can you do anything that makes you stronger than all the evils of the world? Can you defeat it all? Can you answer justice? Can you deal out justice to every single moment and everything that is sin? Can you do it all, Job? Because if you can't, then you can't save yourself. You have no hope. And really quickly... And I'm sorry that it's quickly, because this is really good. Job's response. You notice I highlighted the Lord's challenge? Because again, the key is not, right, the hippo and the crocodile, right? The dinosaur and the dragon. The, the key is the Lord is challenging Job. You think I'm unjust, that I'm not doing things right. Can you do better? And Job's response to not only can I not do better, but there are dangers, fearful terrible things around me that I have no control over and have no ability to overcome. I can't save myself. And so this is Job's response. Three things, and I'll put them all up there so you could see them all at once. What Job knows. Verse 1 says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, verse 2, he explains what he knows, I know that you can do all things, and the purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's not that Job ever doubted that God could do all things. In fact, Almighty is one of, God, uh, one of Job's favorite terms for God. It means that he can do all things. But something about hearing about the uncontrollable personification of evil in Behemoth and Leviathan has deepened and widened his understanding of who God is. It's not just that God is powerful, but that he's all-powerful. It's not just that God is good, but He's all good. It's not just that God can, but He can everything. And so Job is growing in his humility and his carefulness about how he thinks about God and what God owes him. God invites us in, but He's not safe. He's not domesticated. In fact, there are domesticated gods. In the Old Testament, we call them household idols. They make little images, right, of a little Zeus or a little Thor. And they carry with them. And then when they feel fearful, they take them out. This little tiny carved image. And God's whole point and Job's point is that he is not domesticated. He doesn't fit, right, into your devotional. And that's all he gets. That's how you may treat him. But Job is saying, I know you can do anything and then no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You are in absolute control, and I must stop domesticating you, demanding of you to fit my needs. You are God. I am not. 
I'll accept what comes from your hands. That seems to be where his heart is headed. This is what Job knows. What Job didn't know, verse 3, he confesses. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not know, what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. That term in the, in the Old Testament, when it says wonderful, it means miraculous or supernatural. It means something that is a God thing. These are things that are too godlike for me to understand, which I did not know. I want to draw us to that first part in verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Who said that? God said that first about Job. And so when Job is, is speaking God's very word as his confession, when he is quoting God as a means of confessing his own unworthiness, he says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge while he's thinking of himself? It feels like me thinking of myself when I was reading and studying this. Who am I that hides counsel without knowledge? Who am I to darken God's wisdom without knowing everything in the universe? And that is helpful, humble, and a recognition that I am an idiot who cannot save even his own life. How can I rescue this world from all the circumstantial and moral evils that swirl around us like great beasts? Well, what does Job now see in verse 4 through 6? He says, verse 4, Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and make it known to me. Job says that which he had, he had initially begun with in saying, Lord, I need to ask you some questions. He says it again, but in a totally different tone. I am going to question you, and you're going to make known to me but not because I demand anything, but because you are God and I am not. Verse 5, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. It's an interesting statement because he hasn't seen God. God is speaking from a whirlwind, but he didn't appear like the Isaiahic uh, vision, right, where Isaiah sees God enthroned. It's not like he's like the three disciples that got to see Jesus transfigured and he saw something of the glory of God in the person of the Son. He, he hasn't seen God. So why does he say that I, I had heard about you before, but now I see you? And he's trying to describe what has transpired in his own soul, in his mind, where he has been talking about God with knowledge and theology and with philosophy and been bantering with these other fools about what God should be, what he isn't, what he's revealed himself to be. And all of a sudden now, as God has addressed him and spoken of his incapacities, he realizes, I haven't just been hearing about God, but at this moment, I see you with clarity in my soul. In verse 6, I despise myself. I wonder at the ridiculous nature that despise means to reject. He says, I reject all of it. My sense of knowledge, my wisdom, my great learning, my theology, my philosophy, my self-righteousness, my complaining, my demanding that you make my life better. I despise myself for thinking that I have a right to speak to you that way. And I repent in dust and ashes. And I already spoke about what dust and ashes is about. It's about repenting as if I deserve to die. Dust and ashes is death and destruction. I think what we're to take away, if I could just close with this thought, right? 
from everything that God has spoken to Job about. Like we, Job, like us, was expecting a direct answer. God, justify yourself. How dare you send such wicked things into the life of a righteous man? And we're like, yeah, Lord, that'd be, that'd be nice for us to hear that answer too. And we expect God to go, well, uh, I know, uh, I'm sorry, but I have to do this because this will lead to this, will lead to this. And we expect him to give us and draw out the tree, the flow chart of why God does what he does. And God's answer is not that. It's not that direct. His answer is, why is there evil in the world? Because it is necessary to bring about that which is the best. I don't expect you to understand it. Because if I made a flow chart out of this, it would be infinite and you can't handle it. It's like a butterfly effect. If I explain to you that butterfly flapped his wings here and there's a tornado and it changed course over there, how many things do I have to explain to you and teach you? How many billions of years would it take for you to understand enough to see that I controlled this and that? From beginning to end. You couldn't get it. You couldn't understand it. You can't, you don't have the capacity for it. Only God knows how supernatural evil can serve his purposes and establish good. How the darkness of the behemoths and the Leviathans of this world can be utilized for ultimate righteousness. Only God knew that his son could stand and be persecuted and killed in a way that he could not deserve, but that that would rescue billions and billions of believers in all of human history. You might feel like there are some things that are so big, right? So overpowering so so terrifying, so frightening in your life. It is so big that it unearths you, that it is almost existential to you. Like, like it's a crisis. It, it, you, you're not sure how to survive this. You're not sure how you could get through the next day. You might feel like it's so big. And God's response to that is, it's not bigger than me. That's the thing that the believer needs to understand. And that the Leviathans, these, these unapproachable, amazingly powerful, and, and, and you know, life-dominating evils are still an instrument in God's sovereign and mighty hand. That God is absolute in His power and is never flinching in His righteousness. But He's a God of goodness and love. Who can tame that monstrous evil? Not you, not me, not Job. But God can. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace to give us your word. We thank you for the, the speeches in Job. Lord, we know that there's some things in there we, we don't fully comprehend. But Lord, would you humble us so that we'd be receptive to your truth. We praise you that you are absolute in your power and sovereignty. We praise you that you are immense and infinite. We praise you that you would love us enough to send your son to take our place in death. Because all of that, Lord, none of that is conditioned upon us or what we've done or what we deserve. But because of the demonstration of your willingness to do whatever it takes to rescue us from our unrighteousness, even utilizing the unrighteousness of men for your glory. We praise you for all these things. 
And we thank you that we could worship a great God. In Jesus' name.